I'm Madatha Ahmed, Managing Partner at Unitas Communications, and this is PR Unmasked. On August the 15th, the Taliban forces took control of Afghanistan's capital city, Kabul, a takeover that triggered geopolitical uncertainty and a major humanitarian crisis. In today's episode, I sat down with Moed Yusuf, the National Security Advisor to the Prime Minister of Pakistan and the author of the book, Brokering Peace in Nuclear Environments, U.S. Crisis Management in South Asia, to discuss the political future of the region by exploring Pakistan's role in Afghanistan and how the West should respond to the new reality of Taliban rule. We will be taking questions from members of the UK Parliament and key foreign policy and security experts throughout the discussion. Moid, thank you so much for joining us today. Let's jump straight into the first question. So Pakistan has a unique relationship with Afghanistan, not only because of shared border and trade, but also through various cultural, ethnic, and religious connections. The former Afghan president, Hamid Karzai, even described the two countries as inseparable brothers. In the light of some Western countries hoping to influence the new Taliban government, do you believe Pakistan could and should play a role as a mediator? Look, I mean, I think the, the uniqueness, very simply, uh, in the current context is that Afghanistan is a landlocked country uh, and depends heavily on Pakistan because of the cultural and ethnic links. They're divided families, um, divided um, ethnicities, a border that has been porous for, for uh, years and years, uh, in fact, hundreds of years. But now we have to face a very clear reality as the international community. That is, there is a new government in Afghanistan, a new government that will make decisions, that will decide how to run the country, and that will ultimately be the broker that the world needs to engage with. Pakistan has put its view out there very clearly. Pakistan stands for virtually everything that the world is talking about. Um, a government that cares for its people and the rights of the people, a country from where terrorism cannot flow uh, to other countries. But well, that's what the point here is, we have a very clear choice. And I don't think we need to make any bones about this. Either we think of the average Afghan citizen, the 35 million who are going to live in Afghanistan no matter what, and see what the responsibility of the international community, especially those countries who were present there for the last two decades. Do they have a responsibility towards that average Afghan? And if so, how are they going to engage with the new government to provide uh, economic and development assistance, avert a humanitarian crisis? I'm hearing again and again in the international press and media, oh, let's plan to manage the humanitarian crisis. Why? Are Afghans not humans? Why are we not talking about averting a human tragedy? The way to avert the human tra tragedy is to constructively engage with the new reality in Afghanistan and ensure that there is a conversation about assistance. There is a conversation about uh, humanitarian and development assistance. And there is a conversation on how to bring peace and stability to Afghanistan. Look, the uniqueness that you talk about really for Pakistan at the end of the day is that we have been a victim of the wars in Afghanistan for the past four decades. I don't know how many of your audience know, but Pakistan, just since 9-11, over 80,000 casualties, over $150 billion lost in the economy, 
three and a half million internally displaced people at the height of the war that was brought to Pakistan from Afghanistan was not a farm making. And we still host approximately four million Afghan refugees. So the point is, we cannot afford any kind of instability in Afghanistan because it directly affects us. Mind you, we've made this mistake before as the Western world. After the 1980s, when the Soviets were defeated, the world abandoned Afghanistan and sanctioned Pakistan, the most allied of allies. What happened? A security vacuum, a civil war, misery, an economic meltdown. And what happened? The international terrorists took root and the rest is history. Why do we want to get to a point where again there is a, a collapse, human beings suffer, there is a mass migration outflow, and there is a security vacuum filled by international terrorists? Look, Pakistan is going to hurt directly. We have no option but to engage. But rest assured, this doesn't remain limited. We've seen it before. Refugee crises and terrorism are not going to respect borders. And so for the Western world, I would argue, it's as much a selfish national interest for the countries to make sure that they don't let this happen. And the only way to do that is to engage constructively, use the leverage that the, the Western world has in terms of legitimacy, in terms of assistance, and use that to influence behavior. Thank you, Boyd. Um, time to welcome our, our first guest contributor. We have Yasmin Qureshi with us. Yasmin is a member of the UK Parliament for Bolton Southeast and has been a Labour MP for over a decade now. She currently serves as Shadow Minister for International Development and chairs the British All Parties Parliamentary Group on Pakistan. She's also on numerous parliamentary committees, including foreign affairs. Thank you for joining us, Yasmin. Over to you. Firstly, Mahit, thank you so much for your presentation. Now, you and I have spoken a few times before this, and as always, I find that, uh, you know, you very accurately describe what is happening in Afghanistan. And at the same time, you talk about the pressures that the international community are now wanting Pakistan to take. So, for example, you know, they want Pakistan to take more refugees now. They want Pakistan to be at the forefront of trying to resolve this situation for them, which I, I agree with you. I think it's wrong without them putting resources in it. Uh, and I agree with everything you've said. Pakistan borne the brunt of this uh, so-called war on terror, which uh, has cost Pakistan and Afghanistan the destruction. And we in the Western world are sitting there quite calmly in our world, not realizing that to full extent of what's going on there. So I suppose, really, I mean, I, I fully get, and I have raised this issue in Parliament a number of times, the sacrifices in the past, about the sacrifices Pakistan has made, and the international community is still sort of saying, well, you're not doing enough, which I think is completely unfair and wrong. Many of the countries of the world are not doing much, and they just sort of sit there, like the Americans, you know, they spent a trillion odd dollars in Afghanistan, and all they've done is destroy it. They didn't do any restructuring, any rebuilding of anything that would actually help the Afghan people. But so my question is, you had Dominic Raab, our foreign secretary, recently visiting Pakistan and other places. Whilst obviously we're not asking you to share with us confidential information that uh, you know, would have been discussed between yourselves, can you sort of enlighten us did Dominic Raab illustrate to you that he understands what's happening? And did he say anything that gives you confidence 
that the international community may for once get their act together in this particular situation. Well, thanks, Jasmine. It's uh, always good to, to hear you. Look, I mean, I, I, I do think so. I, I think there's clarity that the mistakes of the past should not be made again. We did hear that, and that's, that's encouraging. We also heard, you know, a humanitarian aid, more humanitarian aid being put in uh, by the UK, which shows that there is an interest in, in engagement in, in making sure that things don't collapse. The issue is we shouldn't be talking about this in a binary, right? There isn't uh, engagement and no engagement. I think everybody ultimately will have to engage. And let's be honest, let's be honest. Everybody is engaged. Privately, everybody's engaged. Before this, everybody was engaged through Doha or whoever was present. You know, there are, there are people who, who dealt with the Taliban directly in the last few weeks for evacuation. So it's, it's not like people are not engaged. Let's just own up to it. There is engagement. Yeah. And now transfer this engagement into a constructive conversation about how to sustain Afghanistan's economy and most importantly, Afghanistan's people. The other thing is, you know, I did hear it and I, I think it's encouraging that the engagement part is understood. But engagement is not only humanitarian assistance, right? Humanitarian assistance may be urgent. It is, it is immediate, it should come. But then there's a country to run. You know, if you had left Ashraf Ghani with no assistance from the outside for three months, this government would have collapsed. You know, there's no rocket science. It was essentially a war economy that was fueled by foreign assistance. And so, again, the issue is there isn't a war right now. Thankfully, we've been spared the protracted conflict and bloodshed. Let's take advantage of that and make sure that there is some semblance of peace and stability that, that returns and continues in Afghanistan. Now, with you know, such a short visit, that's difficult to, to, to talk through and decipher. But I really do hope that people don't hear me talking about this as if I'm giving you a sense of what I think should happen in Afghanistan. It's a sovereign country. You've got a new caretaker government. They will make their decisions. But it is my right as the Pakistani official and as Pakistan to raise this again and again, because as you've rightly said, and I've pointed out, I am the biggest victim and loser the four decades of wars in Afghanistan. So I'm not going to listen from anybody that my equity is equal to somebody else's when it comes to the fallout in Afghanistan. Everybody suffers. Everybody has suffered. Uh, but I am in a position where I've got to defend my interests in Pakistan, and they do come from ensuring there is engagement with any government in Afghanistan. It may be a luxury for the West. It isn't for Pakistan, and that's why the entire world needs to coordinate. There's no point one country going at a time. Let's coordinate and make sure we do right by the Afghans, especially those countries who were there for two decades. Thank you. Thank you, Yasmin, for that question. I'd like to now move on to my, my second question. In a recent speech, uh, President Biden articulated a U.S. foreign policy focused on competition with Russia and critically China. Given Pakistan's close, extremely close relationship with China, what does this mean for the future of Washington-Islamabad relationship? And where do you see that going, especially now that the U.S. has withdrawn from Afghanistan? I want to tell you, first of all, to answer this question, where Pakistan stands, that will help uh, the audience understand. We have made a major change in the way we approach our vision of national security in the country. Pakistan is now decidedly on a geoeconomic paradigm. Our vision is based on three pillars, regional connectivity, 
development partnerships, and peace within and in the region. Afghanistan is absolutely critical to that vision because one of the key nodes of connectivity for Pakistan, trade and transit connectivity, is Central Asia. We can't connect with Central Asia unless Afghanistan is peaceful. And unless that happens, our warm waters can't be used by Central Asia, who are desperate to do it, and is also very good for us to optimize our own uh, economic vision. In this, China has provided Pakistan tremendous assistance in the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is again a connectivity project, roads, power, and infrastructure. But we, in our geoeconomic vision, are not into camp politics at all. We've made this clear, we made this public again and again. It doesn't suit us to be in one great power camp uh, against another. We are inviting everybody to come and invest in Pakistan, including in the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, or otherwise, our conversations with the US have been good. We've got a structured dialogue. We're talking about commerce and investment. Yes, Afghanistan was the key issue. It used to suck all the air out of the room, perhaps still is. But our conversation is that we need to have a purely bilaterally focused Pakistan-US relationship, not colored by any third lens, be it Afghanistan or China or India, as, as it often is. We want a relationship on merit with a country that's the fifth, sixth, fifth or sixth largest market in the world that has all the potential to offer and a geoeconomically and geostrategically pivotal location. It's really Western, some Western outlets that have let on, supported with due respect by India, who hasn't wasted a single opportunity to create fake news about Pakistan uh, in the world that Pakistan somehow is in China's camp and is opposing the West. Not at all. The US is our largest export destination, one of the largest uh, investment sort of destination points. Yes, our relationship with China is going from strength to strength. It's non-negotiable. It's a strategic partnership, has always been, not at the cost of anybody else. That's what our position is. That's how we're operating in terms of policy. Anything that you hear to the contrary is essentially propaganda. Uh, coming from elements who uh, want to undermine Pakistan's position in the West. Thank you, Moid. Now we have Sharik Zafar joining us. Sharik is an Assistant Professor of International Relations and Security Studies at the George Washington Walsh School of Foreign Service. Previously, he served as Deputy Chief at the National Counterterrorism Center at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and as Special Representative of Muslim Communities at the State Department. Welcome, Sharik, over to you. Thanks, Moe. And just a point of clarification, I'm an adjunct. Uh, I don't have such an eminent title as being an assistant professor at Georgetown. They wouldn't let me in, I'm sure. Uh, one thing that came across is that it's important not to underestimate the trauma, the misunderstanding, and frankly, just the pure exhaustion that uh, Pakistanis and Americans have had in dealing with a number of issues and crises with each other. And does it mean that we have to temper our expectations and have, take a more modest approach? And if that's the case, how do we manage that with the number of realities that you just described uh, and given the urgent need, for example, in Afghanistan? Thanks, Sharik. Look, I mean, I think this is a decision the US has to make. Uh, I um, don't think anything I'm saying is contrary to, frankly, US interest. When the 90s happened, 9-11 came about, why did the US president at the time and why did Secretary Clinton after that, many years after that, say we made a mistake in terms of 
disengaging with the region in terms of losing uh, contact with the Pakistani military and other institutions, and we're not going to abandon this region again. There was a logic to it. It wasn't a favor to Afghanistan or, or Pakistan. The logic was very bad things came out of the abandonment of the region. So this idea that I sometimes, I was in DC recently, as you know, here that, well, you know, there was mistrust in Afghanistan and thus the bilateral relationship, how can we move forward? Well, it has to move forward because there is a rational interest attached on both sides. And if it doesn't, it will essentially be, if you ask me honestly, an illogical move on either side. Because number one, Afghanistan will need support going forward. You understand the geography. Without Pakistan, uh, Afghanistan's economy is very difficult to sustain and improve, just given the landlocked nature. Which other country can extend connectivity to Afghanistan, have proposals for investment, etc.? Second, is the terrorist threat gone? ISK, uh, ISIS essentially, ISKP just showed us that they're alive and kicking in, in the Kabul um, carnage, uh, you know, just uh, a week ago, 10 days ago. If that's true, how is the world going to deal with this threat unless we are coordinated in having a conversation? And third, it's a choice for the US private sector to make and others. Do you or do you not want to take advantage of the fifth, sixth largest market in the world? You know, the point here is I don't want anything that I'm saying to sound like Pakistan's interest is being projected. I think it's a mutual interest. If the U.S. decides it's not in its interest to look at these things, then it's unfortunate, but that's fine. You know, we'll, we'll do what we can in the region because we don't have an option of upping and leaving like the U.S. has. I mean, that's simply the reality. And the last part of this I'll say is the reason for the, the discord and the mistrust, whatever it may have been, was what was happening in Afghanistan. And whatever was happening in Afghanistan, presence is no longer there. Now it's a very different conversation about how to sustain the country for the sake of the average Afghan. There, what is the US saying and what is Pakistan saying? It's identical, right? So, so I, I mean, if we are just going to, you know, not be able to get over the past and lose an opportunity for the future, I think that's fairly unfortunate, if not uh, irrational. And frankly, I have to tell you, I don't get that sense from the U.S. government. We've had good conversations, good meetings. Uh, I've, you know, the NSAs have had a structured dialogue that we've created. It's moving forward. So I'm not, I'm not that pessimistic, frankly. But yes, if there are people who feel, well, the past is more important than the future, well, you know, as a policymaker in the past, that's probably the worst position to be, no matter what country you're talking about. Thank, thank you, Moid. And, and of course, thank you, Sharik. Um, time for another question for myself. Um, Moid, with the Taliban ascendant on one side and Modi's BJP entrenched on the other, how does Pakistan escape a rising tide of political fundamentalism in South Asia? And why is it that certain types of extremism, whilst fading in many parts of the global South, seem to be rising in South Asia? It's not rising in Pakistan. Uh, I can tell you, we went through a very difficult time between 2000 and I would say seven and, and about 13, 14, when terrorism was you know, at its peak. Again, terrorism that came directly as a backlash uh, to what was happening next door in Afghanistan and Pakistan's support for the US and others. That's the irony that we uh, <laughs> went, uh, you know, essentially bent over backwards to support a war that was not of our making. We got a backlash because of that. 
we lost 80,000 in terms of casualties. We had, as I told you, $150 billion lost in the economy. And rather than recognizing the sacrifices, the world kept telling us you haven't done enough. Basically, from our perspective, saying, get another 80,000 killed and then we may be happy. Uh, you know, it was, it was absurd. But in Pakistan, actually, we've gone past that. And now, thankfully, for the past uh, seven, eight years, actually have not had a terrorist problem that, that we saw earlier. With that also, extremism has come down because, of course, the terrorists were fueling more conversation, a radical conversation that was affecting people. But your point about India, I, I, I want to address that. That's not a South Asian thing. That is a government that has come into power that is deeply ideological. And the ideology comes from something called the RSS, which is an extreme right-wing violent organization with its roots in believing in the ideology of uh, Nazi Germany. I'm not making this up. You can go and read the Mein Kampf equivalent of the RSS uh, written in the 1920s and after that sort of uh, proliferated <clears throat> by later leaders. It, you can't see the difference. And that's why increasingly you can't see the difference between Modi's India, the ideology that is expansionist. Every neighbor of India it has got a feud with or a conflict with now. Muslims are being killed on the streets of India, cow vigilantism, something called love jihad, very interesting that somehow Muslims are actually, you know, uh, waging this love jihad or whatever it is in terms of uh, converting um, non-Muslims. Just today I was looking at a BJP uh, legislator called Muslims snakes. Uh, Muslims were called pesticides. And this all minorities, not only Muslims. Here's the point I want to make. And this I don't make as a Pakistani, honestly make as, a, as an intellectual. We are witnessing a government that is closest to Nazi Germany's or Hitler's back in the 1930s. We are seeing the world react to this exactly as the world reacted in 1939 with the peace accord and everything else. And the world will pay for this just like we did at that time. I understand India is being propped up as a counterweight to China. I understand market and all of that. India is reeling. India is imploding from within. And that is taking away any possibility of it playing any role for the West. Let me also tell you that such uh, governments always live of false propaganda. They spent 20 years creating a narrative about Afghanistan. What was the narrative? Oh. But for Pakistan, everything would be fine. So don't look inwards. Don't look at the fact that the ANSF is not going to stand and fight. Don't look at the massive corruption. Don't look at the fact that the government of Afghanistan was not, had no credibility with the people and was stalling political negotiations. Take your eye off the real problem. Focus on Pakistan as the bogey or the scapegoat. And at the end of the day, face the embarrassment that the Ghani government and its patrons have felt. This was coming. But the narrative was created, oh, it's Pakistan. I was just looking at something coincidentally before we started. Take a look at this if you guys can see this. I don't know how, how clear it is, but take a look at this. This is mainstream Indian media yesterday talking about a Pakistani jet flying over Panjshir Valley to provide support to the Taliban in their fight against um, in the Panjshir Valley. The plane is a US F-15 flying over Wales 
debunked the the media report debunked by a UK's defense journal, not by me. This is mainstream Indian media. Uh, last year, the EU Disinfo Lab, sitting in Brussels, not in Pakistan, released a 50-60 page report which showed that for 15 years, India ran a fake news campaign, a disinformation campaign in 114 countries using 750 plus websites with one aim to create fake news about Pakistan. I'm not saying this, it's a public report. And much of that about Afghanistan and Kashmir. So I, I'm sorry I'm being emphatic about this, but let me say this again, and I say this advisedly. We are seeing an Indian government that does not care about human lives that come in the way of its ideology, that is expansionist, that will not stop, have no limits to how far it goes in terms of creating fascist control over India. We've just been joined, thank you so much for that. We've just been joined by a member of the British Parliament, Naz Shah. Naz Shah has been a, a Labour MP for Bradford West since 2015. She's currently the Shadow Minister for Community Cohesion, as well as the Vice Chair of the All Parties Parliamentary Group on British Muslims. Welcome, Naz, and thank you for joining us. And over to you to ask your, your question. Hi, thank you very much for that. And my apologies, um, I haven't been able to hear to everything that Moida said, but Moida, I've had. What are the challenges you feel from a security perspective for the for, for potentially for, for the army and the ISI, which then we need to be talking here to talking about here to the Western world about what the role of I suppose the role of the army and ISI in particular and whether they're going to be doing anything front facing in addition to visiting Kabul, etc. Whether they're going to be what what are the conversations that we need to be having amongst parliamentarians here? What are the key messages that we need to be focusing on from, from our security perspective, from the Western security perspective. Thanks, Naz. I'll say two or three things. First of all, Pakistan's institutions will do exactly what any neighbor does. Our concern is spillover of instability from Afghanistan. What does that mean? If there is a refugee crisis, Pakistan's going to take overwhelming majority of the hit. Right? We're going to bear the brunt of this, as we have in the past. As I just said, we still have about four million, four decades on. Second, there are anti-Pakistan terrorist groups that were given uh, sanctuary and succor by the Ashraf Rani uh, government. And we've constantly said, put out dossiers with facts to the T, detailing every act that India and its uh, intelligence agencies were involved. In any case, the point is, we can't afford them to come over. There is ISKP. We can't afford them to come over. So border management is critical for us. Our military our intelligence will be uh, talking and working with the Taliban to ensure that. Our government is still being asked to ensure evacuations of some remaining internationals and other Afghans. Uh, we have talked to the Taliban about that. You saw that the ISI chief was just in Kabul and this huge hue and cry in India and, and some international press, oh, look, he's there. Well, the CIA chief visited uh, two weeks ago. He was in the press. Nobody questioned that. A neighbor doesn't have the right to go and talk to a new authority to say how we're going to manage our affairs. The UK and many other countries want us to evacuate people who are remaining. How do we do that without talking to them? How do we arrange uh, and create a management structure in which those people who are desirables come across and others don't? How do we manage our border? How do we avert a refugee crisis? These are all conversations we will have. 
right? So you should be surprised if Pakistan is not engaged because we are the, the biggest victim of instability from there. So we are going to engage. It's, you know, if uh, there was, I read conversations, oh, there's a visit, it's a secret visit. For God's sakes, the guy was, is just uh, sitting in Serena having coffee. Is that how intelligence chiefs do secret visits? So, you know, enough of this anti-Pakistan propaganda, frankly. We are asking the entire world to engage because that helps us, but that helps the world as well. So that's what we will do. We will ensure our security without, you know, that. Of course, we won't be doing our job as me sitting here and, and others in Pakistan. The other thing I want to say is if there's a message to be taken back, major refugee crises and security vacuums will not remain contained to Afghanistan or Pakistan or the region. We've seen this movie before. I'm not at all for a second suggesting, God forbid, that something like 9-11 or whatever. But what I'm saying is these terrorist groups will threaten the entire world, including the West. Migration outflow will reach Europe and the US as it has from Syria and elsewhere. So it's in everybody's interest to make sure that we prevent that. Pakistan will do its part, but the world has to play its part, especially those countries who were there for 20 years and frankly have to deliver more for the average Afghan. Thank you. Thank you, Naz. Thank you for that. Uh, moving on to another question from myself. Moid, your recent interview with the Sunday Times correspondent, Christina Lamb, received a lot of media attention. She stated that you had said that the West will risk a second 911, and you, you touched upon this a little bit now, by making the same mistakes that led to the attacks if they do not immediately recognize the Taliban regime. You responded by saying the interview was a gross mischaracterization. Can you elaborate on this? I don't need to with us, sir, because uh, it was so gross that the next day the Times retracted the story, changed it to saying that I had said that the world should engage with the Taliban. I never said immediately recognized. I had never used the word second 9-11. And I spoke to her and she responded, yes, you didn't, but I thought you implied. Or that is my understanding of it. Unfortunately, uh, headlines are made for sensation, not for substance. So they retracted the story. I have nothing to say on that. What I will tell you is my position, which I've just said. Mm -hmm. If we abandon Afghanistan again, there will be a uh, refugee crisis and there will be a security vacuum. There is, it's just logical. I'm not, there's no prediction here. If that happens, it is not good for anybody. It will threaten the entire world. Thus, we should ensure it doesn't happen. And the way to do that is constructive engagement. Not for a second, I'm suggesting second 9-11, fifth 9-11. I'm just saying it's just logical to think through this. If there's a security vacuum, if ISKP, if Al-Qaeda uh, strengthen themselves again, isn't it going to affect the entire world? Mm. Isn't that something we should prevent? If there's a refugee crisis, let's just say for, a, for the sake of argument, that the refugee crisis remains limited to Pakistan. Is that okay for the world? Are Pakistanis not humans who have to uh, ensure that their security is not compromised? Isn't it a global responsibility? So, you know, it's very callous of people when they talk about, oh, another refugee crisis, Pakistan should manage. Pakistan doesn't have the capacity to take a single more person. So let's look at this as a collective responsibility and the responsibility is to prevent a crisis, not to manage it. <laughs> that's a cop out and that's be, that'll be very unethical on the part of those countries who were there for two decades to just let it happen now 
Thanks, Boyd. Uh, our next guest contributor is, is Farah Pandith. Farah is a senior advisor at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, a senior fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations, and a former political appointee in the Obama and Bush administrations, amongst a few other impressive titles. She's, she was also the first ever special representative of Muslim communities at the US State Department. Pleasure to have you with us, Farah. Thank you, Mudassar. Dr. Yusuf, it's a pleasure to talk with you today. I wanted to expand the conversation. I've been listening very carefully to your words. Uh, you used the word victim to describe Pakistan uh, several times. You also framed uh, the posture for Pakistan to be in a victim framework, which I find really interesting. You talked a lot about human rights. You talked about the way in which other countries, specifically India, talked about Muslims as being snakes and being characterized in really bad ways. So with your, with your words um, in, in sort of consolidation and sympathy towards victims and with your acute uh, alertness to the issues of propaganda and fake news, alongside uh, your comment that Pakistan doesn't vis-a-vis -vis China want to get into a quote power camp, I have a question for you. The Prime Minister Imran Khan did an interview with John, uh, Jonathan uh, Swan with Axios a few months ago, in which when he was pressed uh, about two issues, one, the Uyghurs, uh, the other women being raped and the cause of that, the Prime Minister was not very open to a conversation that was sympathetic to the Uyghurs. In fact, the Prime Minister has uh, pushed back against calling China out on their behavior towards the Uyghurs, the way they describe Muslims and their actual acts towards the Uyghurs. So my first question is, why is the prime minister not taking a more serious role as a leader in the region around the Uyghurs? Um, because you yourself have talked about the importance of human rights. And secondly, uh, I'd like you to comment on the prime minister's response to Jonathan Swan in his description around women's responsibility uh, in, in, and I'm using the word responsibility in quotes, uh, around being raped and what, the, what they wear and how they act. I appreciate the time to ask you this question. Thank you. First of all, um, I just say that uh, the framing of Pakistan as a victim is not at all interesting for Pakistanis. It is reality. Uh, it's an unfortunate reality and it's horrendous. Uh, when you have 80,000 people down, uh, there's nothing interesting about it. Uh, I want to assure you of that. Um, this is part of the problem, frankly. Um, we talk about, I'm sorry, but we talk about the losses and the casualties of the West in a very different framing uh, than for a country like Pakistan. Um, so I, I just want to be, uh, I, I hope everybody's more sensitive to what Pakistan has gone through. I'm not asking for any sympathy. I'm just stating a very simple fact that if a country in the West had lost 80,000 people, we would have been having a very different conversation. So it's just simply a fact that we need to acknowledge and acknowledge as much as possible. Uh, the other thing I'm, I'm saying is that the average Afghan is the conversation, right? It shouldn't be a conversation about Pakistan, government, this. The real question is how do we ensure that the average Afghan gets an economy, gets food on the table, and there isn't a collapse? That is not a conversation that I'm having about somebody else. I am talking to the countries who were there for 20 years and their responsibility, and Pakistan will play its part, but others have to as well. We were directly linked to this. The conversation about India 
let me be very clear. I am not for a second suggesting that I am going to interfere uh, with what is happening in India, except when I talk about Kashmir, I talk about my people and a region that's illegally occupied. It's a very different conversation. Now, one may agree or disagree, but it's a UN-recognized dispute. We can't move away from that fact, whether India likes it or not. And so I have the right to say what people who have not been given the right to decide which side they want to be on are going through. That part, I very much own up. As far as your conversation about Uyghurs, I, I, you know, it's, I, I find it interesting, frankly, on how the uh, analytical jump is made. If there is a problem, speak to China. We have our position. Other countries should go and talk to China about what they think is happening there. We have made it absolutely clear. We have a relationship with China where we can have every conversation transparently because that's the kind of attitude we have towards each other. We talk privately about everything. Our people have been allowed to visit there and our uh, notion of what is happening there is very different than what the West is saying. We can agree to disagree, but that is the reality on the ground that we have seen, right? Apart from that, there is an issue. Go and talk to China. It is not my country that I'm talking about. Kashmir, I'm talking about mine. When I talk about Afghanistan, I'm telling you because there were countries there who now seem to be turning their back. And I'm all I'm saying is we've made that mistake before as the world. So these are not comparable at all to me. If there are issues, uh, countries should talk as sovereign countries as they do. Our version of what is happening there given the access that we've been given, uh, is different. As far as your comment about the prime minister's concern, uh, again, uh, I think one of the things media is uh, brilliant at um, these days is taking chunks and pieces and then putting whatever spin they want. He's made it absolutely clear since then again on what his position is. There is only one perpetrator and one uh, person who should be accused, and that's uh, the rapist. It's as simple as that. His position on women uh, is crystal clear to Pakistanis, but when he speaks, there's always this conversation about, oh, he had made this comment. He made it absolutely clear there is only one, uh, and that's the rapist. And the other thing I want to tell you is that the proof is in, in the eating of the pudding. This government under him has put out more legislation on women on rape, uh, on domestic rights, on succession than any other government in Pakistan. So if you really want to know what he thinks about women, just look at what his government has done to empower women in Pakistan in terms of legislation, and that would solve this problem uh, once and for all. Thank you, Moid. Thank you, Farah. Now we have Dr. Kamran Bukhari joining us. Uh, Kamran is Director of Analytical Development at the New Lions Institute for Strategy and Policy. He's also National Security and Foreign Policy Specialist at the University of Ottawa and author of Political Islam in the Age of Democratization. Thank you for joining us, Kamran. Thank you, Mudassar. Hello, Moeed. Uh, you and I keep talking, but I think this is an important opportunity to ask a question that hasn't been discussed so far in this conversation. Uh, I'll go back to what you said that you are appealing to the world that they not turn away from Afghanistan, which is uh, the right thing to do. My sense is that the world doesn't want to turn away from Afghanistan. I think that that lesson has been learned. The issue isn't if it will turn, 
uh, away. The issue is how will it manage? And I think this is where at least Western capitals here in Washington are struggling. How do you deal with a government? Yes, the United States, the Trump administration and the Biden administration have been dealing with the Taliban, but you will agree that that was at a tactical level. And how do we get from, how do we engage and not recognize? I think that is the problem that the, the Western world is struggling with. But also, uh, the, I think that you know, while the media is saying something different, I do believe that those uh, in government realize that uh, you know, Pakistan has a, a huge role to play. And if Pakistan is not assisted, then whatever is going to happen in Afghanistan will not stay in that country it will spill over into Pakistan. So my question to you is, what is it that Islamabad needs from the West uh, in, in con concrete terms? You mentioned you know, dealing with refugees, uh, dealing with the humanitarian crisis. But I think that before we, while we do that, there is also the issue of how Pakistan will secure its borders. Pakistan can only deal with Afghanistan's humanitarian crisis and its development needs and its you know, issues if it is secure itself. And you will agree that Pakistan is vulnerable to what is happening in Afghanistan. Taliban announced a government. Unfortunately, it is a government of not inclusive, even though they're saying this is an interim setup, but uh, it has some of the most hardline elements in the Taliban in senior positions. In a situation like that, A, how does Pakistan deal with its own security? What does Pakistan need from the West in order for Pakistan to re remain secure and then effectively deal as the frontline state? Because look, everybody else can go home. Pakistan cannot. This is home for Pakistan. That's a reality that is shaped by geography and not subjective preferences. Over to you. Thanks, Tamar. Thank you for the question. Look, uh, the first thing I'd say is what the international community, I hope, does is look at Afghanistan and do right by the average Afghan. Not for Pakistan's sake, not for anybody's sake, in selfish national interest of the countries that were present there for 20 years. History is going to judge every country very poorly who was there if this region or Afghanistan is abandoned again. Right? Second, I don't agree with you that the engagement was tactical. It was entirely strategic because the conversation was how to end the war and get to a government. That's not tactical. That's very strategic. And at the highest level, right? We even heard the words Camp David uh, at one time for, uh, for a conversation. So I think it was strategic. People know each other well. There was engagement every day because of evacuation. So, you know, I think that barrier needs to be crossed. But what I'm worried about, what I'm hearing sometimes is, oh, we'll wait and see how the Taliban behave, right? Wait and see means what? Two months, three months, four months, we'll see what they do. There's no money in the country. The reserves are not being given to them. They have no economy uh, to speak of. If, as I said earlier, if you would have left Ashraf Ghani without money for three months, what would have happened? A collapse. So I think there's, there's a contradiction in terms. You can't wait and see and hope that things will sustain and, and engage constructively. So that's one. But for Pakistan, I think... The first thing is to acknowledge that the world had its narrative wrong. Acknowledge that Pakistan was saying again and again there isn't a military victory. 
We were saying the army won't stand. Now, Wali Nasser has written of all people of what Pakistan had said 10 years ago. We were saying, if there is an issue, it has to be resolved politically. The state won't hold the way it did, uh, the, the way people were saying it would. And we've seen the result. So one at least acknowledged that what we were saying was right and used that to again believe that Pakistan is saying, engage, that has to be the right way to go about it and, and follow through. Second, please stop defending India's policies that are destabilizing the region. They have destabilized Afghanistan. They've tried to destabilize Pakistan. Every neighbor has a conflict with India. It is going to come back to haunt those who are emboldening India to do this. Thank you, Kamran. Thank you, Lloyd. Now we're almost at the end of, of the discussion. Um, so I'd like to to give Moid the floor for any concluding remarks that we've certainly covered many topics, but perhaps there's something you'd like to stress to, to our audience. Look, I'll be very candid, Mudassar. There is a very clear decision point. Political expediency for many countries may demand suggesting that there'll be engagement by walking away, but the only right path here is not to make mistakes. The 90s that the, the global leaders said was such a disaster that it would never happen again. If move, uh, there's a move towards abandonment, the, the results will be disastrous for everyone, right? I understand that, you know, there is a government, there's a government with which a war was fought, um, may not look good to many countries, but what is the alternative? The alternative is giving up on the Afghan. But if there is engagement, the Taliban have signaled an interest in legitimacy. They need assistance. That's the leverage the world can use to have a conversation about the concerns that the world may have. Kamran has just said, well, look, it's not an inclusive government. Okay. Do, does, let's say, take example of the US or UK or whatever. Do you want to influence that conversation? If so, what is the way to do it without engaging? And why do you have leverage? Because assistance is going to come from the Bigger powers and legitimacy will only come if that engagement happens from the international community, not from Pakistan or any other country. Use that leverage, influence whatever you, you can or want. If you don't do that, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the self-fulfilling prophecy ends in a very bad place, which we've seen before. Refugees, humanitarian crisis, security threats. Um, so, you know, I'm not saying that one option is a very easy, good one. It's actually a very difficult one. But the other option is self-inflicting pain. It's irrational, frankly, and ultimately will only hurt the international community. So that's where I am. But at the end of the day, remember, there is a government in Afghanistan now, a caretaker government. They are the sovereign authority. They decide what happens. We can only air our views. Uh, the world can influence. And I hope it's used constructively through incentives and not just simply to, to demean and, and walk away. Well, once again, thank you, Dr. Moyd. Thank you for giving us your time, sharing with us your important insights. I'd also like to thank all of our, our speakers. We had some really important contributions from Yasmin, Sharik, Naz, Kamran, and Farah. It was a pleasure to have you all with us today. Thank you for joining us for this episode of PR and Mass with Madassa Ahmed by Unitas Communications. I hope you learned something valuable with this episode. I certainly did. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. Stay tuned.